I'm Michael Klein, Executive Editor of Econofact, a nonpartisan web-based publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. At Econofact, we bring key facts and incisive analysis to the national debate on economic and social policies, publishing work from leading economists across the country. You can learn more about us and see our work at www.econofact.org. There are problems that are acute and those that are chronic, but both are problems. A heart attack is addressed immediately, but people may ignore chronic high blood pressure and do so at their peril. Chronic and acute economic problems likewise get different amounts of attention. The government rallied to prevent a steep and protracted economic downturn at the outset of the COVID pandemic, but has failed to address the chronic problem of high and rising government debt. As with high blood pressure, we can ask similar questions of government debt. How did we get to this point? What are its threats? How can we treat the problem? To address these questions, I'm pleased to welcome to Econofact Chats, Mark Zandi. Mark is chief economist of Moody's Analytics, where he directs economic research. He also serves on the board of directors of MGIC, the nation's largest private mortgage insurance company, and is the lead director of Reinvestment Fund, one of the nation's largest community development financial institutions, which makes investments in underserved communities. He is the author of Paying the Price, Ending the Great Recession, and Beginning a New American Century, which provides an assessment of the monetary and fiscal policy responses to the Great Recession, and also Financial Shock, a 360-degree look at the subprime mortgage implosion and how to avoid the next financial crisis. Mark, welcome to Econofact Chats. Michael, so good to be with you. Thanks for the opportunity. Well, it's great to have you on. Mark, the federal government debt represents all the borrowing done by the government to cover shortfalls in its budget as well as the interest payments on past debt. Where does the debt stand today, and how has it evolved over the last few decades? It's high. Uh, The Congressional Budget Office, CBO, the uh, uh, nonpartisan agency that does the budgeting, puts the uh, publicly traded debt-to-GDP ratio just under 100%. uh, And for context, if you go back, say, 20, 25 years ago, it was 35, 40%. Uh, of course, the financial crisis was very costly, added significantly to the debt load. And then uh, more recently, the pandemic uh, and all the costs associated with that uh, raised the debt load. But here we are uh, at uh, just under 100%. What were the sources of these increases? You mentioned the pandemic and the financial crisis, but debt reflects spending minus tax revenues. And at the start of the, re- the recession, like those in 2008, In 2020, government spending goes up in an effort to keep the economy from cratering, and revenues go down with reduced growth and lower taxes. That's part of the story. But what about the nearly 20 percentage point rise between 2011 and the end of 2019? Yeah, I I think the the pandemic and the uh, financial crisis were the two key contributors. I I think uh, other uh, big factors would include... uh, the 9/11 and the resulting wars that we fought, uh, 
and uh, against terrorism. And then, of course, all the efforts uh, we made in the, the Middle East, they were very costly. We've had some pretty large tax cuts in this period, uh, the most recent being the, uh, the TCGA, Tax Cut and Jobs Act, that was passed late 2017, early 2018. And that's added significantly to the deficit uh, and debt. So a uh, uh, bunch of stuff, but I think most significantly, it's the, 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 the these two massive crises that uh, uh, require the government to step in and provide a lot of taxpayer support, both in terms of reduced taxes, uh, but also in, in, in terms of increased spending. And of course, Economy's also been on the soft side. You know that period you mentioned uh, was a period of very slow growth. Uh, it was in the wake of the financial crisis, and um, the economy was struggling to grow. And of course, when, when the economy is growing uh, less quickly, that weighs on tax revenue and adds to government expense in terms of income support to folks that are not doing quite as well. So there's no one reason for all of this. There's a bunch of reasons. Uh, but I'd put it at the top of uh, the pandemic and the financial crisis. It's notable that you use the word required the government to step in. So when we're talking about the threat of debt and deficits, we should also think, I suppose, about the fact that in the absence of those, the economy could have really cratered. So it's not like this was done for reasons that weren't well supported, right? Totally. I mean, in, in fact, I would... We don't know the counterfactual here, obviously, but if the, if the federal government had not stepped in in a very aggressive way in the financial crisis and in the pandemic, economy would probably have completely evaporated. Take tax revenues with it. There is, there is, you know, the so-called automatic stabilizers, stabilizers in the budget that would kick in, unemployment insurance and other food assistance and other things that would be added to the cost. So our budget deficits and debt load would be even higher. So it's a Hobson's choice. There's really no good choice here. We took the least bad choice. I guess we do have a counterfactual, 1929 to 1933. Ah, good point. Yeah, that's yeah. a great point. Uh, yeah. The, but well, ultimately, the government did step in. That's when Franklin Roosevelt became president in, in 1932. Is it 32? Yeah, 32. 33, he took 33, office. Yeah. 33, he took office. And, um, you know, that was the, the beginning of the turnaround. But, you know, before that, under Herbert Hoover, a uh, very laissez-faire kind of approach, and that didn't work out so well. Right. Andrew Mellon, who was the Secretary of the Treasury at that time, said, liquidate, liquidate, liquidate. And unfortunately, that's what happened. And the result wasn't what Mellon had hoped that, you know, things would become more efficient. We just got into a worse and worse situation. Yeah. And of course, that was a global uh, depression and same with the financial crisis and the pandemic. These were global issues, not just U.S. issues. So, uh, and, and other governments around the world during the pandemic and financial crisis stepped up in a similar way. Uh, they didn't have the same resources as we did and couldn't step up to the same degree, but they followed the same policy script. And thank goodness, because if we governments around the world hadn't all collectively really provided a backstop to uh, businesses into households, uh, we'd be in a much worse position today. We wouldn't have, I, I feel quite confident in saying we wouldn't have a 3.7% unemployment rate here uh, at this point in time. <clears throat> so we talked about the past. Let's talk about the future a little bit. We have a recent Econofact memo by Karen Dynan of Harvard about the federal debt. And she cites estimates from the Congressional Budget Office about the path of the debt in the future that are quite striking. Numbers that you also cite 
in a recent paper you wrote for the Peterson Foundation. What is the forecast for the debt in the future? Yeah, I think Karen and I are on the same uh, economic advisory board for the CBO because I see her every couple uh, couple times a year, I think, at the, the this board. And it's a really interesting group of economists that uh, attempt to uh, help out the CBO in terms of its forecasting, both on the economic side and budget side. And uh, in the, the the latest forecast, uh, I said the debt to GDP, publicly traded debt to GDP, is a, just under 100 uh, percent, under no change in policy. And of course, CBO's projections assume current policy, no change, uh, or uh, or what's written into law. Uh, the debt to GDP ratio will be, and I'm I'm speaking from memory, so you know this will be roughly right, not completely right, but 115 percent uh, in uh, t- ten years from now. So we're just under 100. Will be 115 percent ten years from now. 180 percent debt to GDP 30 years from now. That's when the forecast ends. But you can do your own forecast. <laughs> it's just straight up, and that's not sustainable. Something's got to give. We need to see some uh, changes here in policy, tax, and spending. One of the factors that contributes to higher debt is higher interest rates. We have a really nice memo by Dan Bergstresser of Brandeis that discusses this. Interest rates had been very low for years, but they've spiked up more recently with higher inflation by the efforts by the Federal Reserve to bring inflation down. How important in your view are higher interest rates for the rising level of debt and the interest burden that is represented in debt? That's important. It's critical. I mean, uh, if you go back prior to the pandemic, when rates were low, between the great financial crisis and the pandemic, rate, inflation interest rates were very, very low. Uh, that takes a lot of pressure off of uh, the government. The, you know, if if rates are below the kind of the nominal growth rate in the economy, much easier for the government to maintain a stable uh, or falling debt to GDP ratio. But when interest rates rise, like they've had. They've now done over the past couple of years uh, with the Fed's efforts to quell inflation uh, and interest rates are above the nominal growth rate in the economy. Things get pretty difficult pretty fast. Interest expense rise uh, as a share of GDP or revenue that adds to the government's deficit and debt uh, that causes interest rates to rise even more. And you can get into this kind of self-reinforcing, very vicious negative uh, cycle and uh, you know that's when things break. Uh, so uh, in, interest interest rates are, are critical to kind of the debt dynamics uh, that will, will play out here going forward. Another point that Karen uh, talks about in her memo is the aging of the population, mm. and this also contributes to higher debt levels, right? It does. I mean, the, the most significant uh, uh, line items in the budget in terms of outlays spending would be Social Security and uh, Medicare. Medicaid is not too far behind. Uh, and of course, Social Security and Medicare for folks that are uh, uh, older in their 60s, 70s and beyond. And, and of course, the population, our population is aging. You know, the baby boom generation, my generation is now firmly in their uh, 60s and 70s and uh, retiring very quickly. So they're not going to be earning uh, uh, wages that get taxed and support the uh, a better fiscal situation, but are going to be calling upon Social Security and Medicare to help support them in their uh, later years, and that does add significantly to uh, the burden. This is this is you know one reason why uh, immigration is so important to the, to our economy in lots of different ways. But immigrant immigrants tend to be 
younger, uh, they're, they're working, uh, entrepreneurial, uh, productive, uh, and that's really critical to making sure that it's, that it's essential that we have continued strong immigration to make sure that, uh, you know, we don't get swamped by this demographic uh, aging of the population that we're, you know, uh, struggling with right now. Well, another quick point, of course, it, this is a, an issue here in the United States. It's also an issue and then some in many other parts of the world, in other parts of the world, because they don't have immigration like we do, like a Germany or a, a Japan or even a China. Their demographic uh, fiscal problems are even much more serious than our own. Yeah, we have a lot of memos about the role of immigration. Um, so people talk about the dependency ratio, which is very much linked to this. Could you just quickly define what that means? Yeah, it's uh, the number of uh, older Americans that are requiring uh, additional support from the government, either through Social Security, Medicare, or other uh, income support programs, and younger uh, population that's working and they're uh, generating income and that income is being taxed and producing the revenues to support the uh, older population. So that that dependency ratio is really critical to understanding this kind of demographic uh, problem that we have. And it's only going to get worse going forward, given the aging of the population. And the falling birth rates, right? That's, yeah, that's a great point. I mean, uh, fertility rates are down. And uh, so we're, we're, it's not only the folks that are aging, it's, it's the fact that we're just having fewer young people, fewer babies. And ultimately, that means the number of people that are young and working uh, isn't growing nearly as quickly. So these are some of the proximate causes of high debt and perhaps even higher debt in the future. Mark, what are the consequences of these high debt levels for the broader economy and for people's standards of living? Well, I think ultimately uh, it means higher. The, the most uh, direct consequence ultimately is higher interest rates. I mean, if you're running large deficits that are adding to the debt load, you're, you're issuing bonds to you know finance that, and uh, investors are you know they're these are this, these are high quality, low no risk uh, treasury bonds, but you know at some point investors start to have their fill of the treasury bonds. They go, enough already. You know, I, I, I've invested enough in these securities. And if you're, the deficits and debt remain large and uh, there's continued issuance of those bonds, those investors start to say, hey, look, you're going to have to pay me a higher interest rate uh, for me to buy this bond. And also to potentially compensate for the risk that, you know, down the road here, uh, that you're, the government <clears throat> may not be in a position to, um, uh, to uh, uh, to make good on the on the promises to pay on that debt. So, my research area is international macroeconomics, and we think about a global world capital market. But the kind of factors that we've seen in the United States, as you mentioned, are happening all over the world. So we're going to have higher real interest rates, not only in the United States but everywhere, and we can't be bailed out by. For example, China buying U.S. Treasury bonds the way they had in the past. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, 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 there's a lot of so-called sovereign debt that's being issued. You know, Treasury bonds are uh, the bonds of the U.S. sovereign, the U.S. government. But uh, uh, governments all over the world are issuing a lot of bonds to finance their own large budget deficits and support their own high debt load. And this is evident across the uh, across the globe. And global investors are, you know, beginning to wonder, well, uh, you know, will governments be able to 
pay me back in a timely way and pay the interest on that debt uh, when it's due. Uh, and, you know, adding to the concern is uh, in many parts of the world, including here in the United States, there's some issues with regard to our politics, how fractured they are, what that might mean in terms of the willingness of lawmakers to come to terms to make good on their obligations to to bondholders, the, the, the investors that are, that are investing in this debt. So, for example, the drama over raising the debt limit, we have this anachronistic you know, law in the United States that the uh, government can't issue debt above a certain limit. So in that we hit that limit every so often and we've got to raise it by by law. And that's become a focal point for a lot of uh, uh, political brinkmanship. And so far, lawmakers have gotten it together and increased the limit in time before uh, uh, not missing a, a debt payment and creating havoc. But, you know, who knows? And that's what investors are starting to ask themselves. Who knows? And by so doing, they're saying, look, you know, there's risk here. It's, this isn't this you you said you sold this to me this bond saying it's risk free but I'm not so sure given all the things that are going on here you're going to have to pay me you the you the U.S. government going to have to pay me the investor a higher interest rate to compensate for that that risk that at least that perceived risk that I have and so you know interest rates you know start mo- moving higher here and this is again it's this is not just a U.S. issue this is a this is a global issue uh, governments around the world are issuing a lot of a lot of bonds so I started off introducing this talk by talking about chronic and acute conditions. So the chronic consequence of the higher interest rates that you're mentioning is less capital formation, less growth in the economy, and so on. But there's also the acute problem that, for example, as you were saying, we could all of a sudden have a crisis where interest rates spike up because of a loss of confidence. But even perhaps less than that, um, but still important, would be a lack of what economists call fiscal space. That if there is another downturn with very high levels of debt, then it becomes difficult for the government to address the problems as they did in 2008 or in 2020. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, well, of course, you know, when things go bad, you know, typical bad would be kind of a recession, which we experience at least in the last several decades, every, you know, six, seven years. Uh, or when it goes really bad, you know, things go completely off the rails, uh, i.e., e.g., the pandemic uh, or the uh, financial crisis, uh, then, uh, you know, the government uh, needs to step in. Uh, you know, it, it steps in through its automatic stabilizers in the kind of a typical recession, but generally those stabilizers aren't uh, large enough, or at least lawmakers and the general electorate feel, feel like this it's not enough. The government has to pass legislation to come up and and help out and step in and stem the 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 bleeding, the economic bleeding. And you know that's that's incredibly costly uh, to do. And the point is that if we're running these large deficits in a, in the good times, like right now, the economy is is doing well. Uh, we're producing lots of jobs. The unemployment rate sub four percent excellent uh, conditions and we're still running massive deficits and adding to the debt load, uh, then you got to ask yourself, you know, are we going to be in a position, is the government going to be in a position to help out when things go bad again? And the the question increasingly is maybe not. Uh, So we don't have that backstop, that collective backstop provided by the government, or that backstop is not nearly as strong. I mean, suppose we have another pandemic, Uh, you know, kid, could the government step up in the same way that it did with the last pandemic. I mean, the last pandemic, 
U.S. government tr- provided 20, excuse me, $5 trillion worth of government support. I'm rounding, obviously, but $5 trillion, that's 25% of GDP. The debt-to-GDP ratio rose 25%. Could the government do the same thing next year if we got hit by another pandemic? That's that's a reasonable question. I mean, probably, but you know, increasingly, that's going to be more difficult to do the higher the debt load is. So there's lots of reason to be nervous about you know rising uh, deficits and uh, big deficits and rising debt loads going forward. Higher interest rates is a corrosive on the economy, uh, uh, but uh, you know it does limit the ability of the government to respond to things that the government has responded to in the past. So, Doctor Zandi, we identified the problem. What about the cure? In your note for the Peterson Foundation, you talk about a few things. Um, One, for example, is to raise the ceiling on earnings that are taxed for Social Security, and another is a carbon tax. Could you talk a little bit about each of these and why you see these as potential ways to address this problem? Yeah, in my view, to address the long-term fiscal problems of the nation, we need tax revenue and we need spending restraint, both. On the tax side, uh, I do think uh, it's reasonable to tax earnings, you know, above a certain level. Right now, there's a cap on the earnings that are taxed, and then anything above that is not taxed. But I would argue, you know, for Social Security, you mean for Social Security? Yeah, yeah, the payroll tax. Uh, you know, so we could uh, start taxing above some high level. So pick a number: four hundred and fifty thousand dollars years a year uh, in earnings tax that. And, so, and there's logic to it in that, you know, when Social Security was put on the planet, going back to Franklin Roosevelt's era, you know, a very large percent of earnings were uh, taxed under the payroll tax. But over the decades, because of the skewing of the distribution of income, more income going to high income households rather than low, an increasing share of earnings are not being taxed, that they're not being used to support the Social Security system. So let's just go back to the future and go back to where we were in the 30s and say, hey, let's uh, let's work to get back to something like that and 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 put the burden on folks that are high income, very high income, and you know, the top couple of three, four percent of the income distribution. And that would put Social Security on a solid financial ground and go a long way to addressing, you know, our broader fiscal issues. Now, I would also say on the carbon tax uh, that, you know, uh, that that uh, solves a lot of problems. Uh, it's, you know, it generates a lot of revenue. It taxes something that uh, should be taxed because carbon is creating uh, the CO2, it's creating temperature rise and uh, uh, exacerbating our climate risk of issues, both terms of physical, uh, you know, and all the physical risks that it's creating. And uh, by taxing carbon and raising the cost of carbon, you're going to address climate change as well and generate a lot of revenue. Now, there, there's a lot of nuances to it. You got to worry about regressivity, you know, because you don't want low income households to suffer the burden of that. So you got to worry about how to address that issue. And then there's questions about, you know, uh, what about uh, nations overseas? If you're taxing your businesses on carbon, don't aren't they at a competitive disadvantage against businesses in other parts of the world that don't tax carbon? But there's ways, very straightforward ways of addressing those concerns. And there, you'll address you'll address a lot of the you'll generate a lot of revenue, really go a long way to addressing the long term fiscal problems and address the risk posed by by climate change. We have uh, quite a few memos on climate on um, carbon taxation by my Tusk colleague Gib Metcalf. 
who's really one of the leading experts on that. So there are a lot of, as you mentioned, there are a lot of things that could be done. Um, there's a political process that makes some doing a number of these things difficult. And one of the key proposals in your Peterson paper is the creation of a bipartisan fiscal commission to address these issues. And you mentioned the Simpson-Bowles Commission that was established during the Obama administration. Can you speak a little bit about what Simpson-Bowles did, how effective it was in changing the discussion on policy, and what you see as the role of a new fiscal commission? Yeah, I mean, Simpson-Bowles uh, got Democrats, Republicans, independents uh, together, people from uh, Congress, the uh, executive branch, and, you know, uh, even some public, uh, some citizens, you know, in different uh, parts of the uh, private sector. I think they had some union member uh, members on the panel as well. So it was a, you know, a, a, a kind of a, a bipartisan group of folks that uh, came together and uh, work to uh, come up with proposals to try to address the fiscal situation. And, you know, back then we thought it was a big deal. It's, it's you no, know, obviously our problems are much greater today. And this is a bigger deal, you know, here as we sit today. Uh, Simpson Bowles was, uh, I think, useful in that it got us talking and thinking about the hard choices we're going to have to make, the trade offs. Uh, and it got pretty close to, you know, the finish line. I mean, it was uh, the idea was that. Uh, uh, Congress would have to vote up or down the proposal. And, uh, you know, uh, if it got voted through, then everything would be adopted in its totality. Kind of the logic was uh, uh, similar to you used to close uh, defense bases back in the day. We had a lot of defense bases that were not being used effectively, and it was hard to close them for political reasons and kind of use that same kind of strategy. Uh, And, we got we got close. It, it didn't get across the finish line. It didn't succeed uh, for lots of different reasons. Uh, and I'm not sure a bipartisan commission today would get anything across the finish line. But I, at this point, I'm, I think we just got to start talking again. You know, the political environment is so fractured, polarized. We're not talking at all. And uh, of course, uh, that makes it impossible to address our long term fiscal issues. So it's just a baby step, you know, one step uh, forward uh, to get things moving. And hopefully that baby step turns into a, a, to a walk, a jog and a run. And we, you know, get something done here in the not too distant future. Well, we clearly have to get something done. And um, when we do, or if we do, I think the insights that you bring to it will be very valuable through, uh, for example, the, what you wrote for the Peterson Foundation, hopefully through this conversation as well. So I'd like to thank you, Mark, for joining me today and for sharing your insights on this really vital issue. Well, thank you for the opportunity. It's obviously a very important issue, and I'm sure, you know, we're going to, Michael, we're going to be talking about this for a long time to come. So uh, it, it was a real pleasure. Thank you. This has been Econofact Chats. To learn more about Econofact and to see the work on our site, you can log into www.econofact.org. Econofact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thanks for listening.